0: This begins episode four, Howard Hunt, Man of Mystery, a podcast in our series, Mysteries of Watergate. I want to talk to you tonight from my heart on a subject of deep concern to every American. Those who hate you don't win unless you hate them. I've been charged with involvement. A full, free, and absolute pardon unto Richard Nixon. What has come to be known as the Watergate Affair. I'm your narrator, John O'Connor. I'm the author of the recent book, Postgate, How the Washington Post Betrayed Deep Throat, Covered Up Watergate, and Began Today's Partisan Advocacy Journalism. In previous episodes, we reviewed the very large puzzlements presented by the odd burglary of the DNC headquarters in Washington, D.C. Among them, there appeared to be no campaign purpose for the White House to wiretap the DNC, even though campaign cash was used. We also talked about the enabling charter of the CIA barring the agency from performing domestic operations. The agency's former collaborator who carried out those operations for the CIA inside the United States, the FBI, was now at odds with the CIA. The FBI was no longer performing that much-desired function for the CIA, which would often include break-ins and wiretaps. We also noted that the White House also lost the cooperation of the FBI and this same dark ops capability. Even though the President had authority, under the Constitution, to order such actions non-compliant with the Fourth Amendment prohibitions against unreasonable searches and seizures, the FBI, which was authorized to carry them out, would no longer do so for White House purposes. The FBI was also refusing to do so for the CIA. The only way that the CIA would be able to carry out operations in the United States would be if in some form or fashion, the CIA obtained at least a tincture of presidential approval for these operations. And while the White House lacked the capability to carry out these operations itself, It certainly had the constitutional authority to approve them. So there was every motive as we approach 1971, following the rejection of the Houston Plan, for the CIA to seek some way to work closely with the White House. It would use that work as a basis for claiming presidential authorization to carry out its own operations. One way of doing this would be to suggest projects ostensibly for White House purposes but which were really, in fact, CIA operations. Loose talk in a White House corridor could be diaried as a request to perform what, in fact, was a CIA operation. The undercover agent, under this hypothesis, would be given a White House inch and proceed to take a covert CIA mile. If at some point the CIA were caught having performed such operations, they would the CIA hoped, not be deemed illegal because, the CIA would claim, they were performed in good faith for the president. Severe consequences, it was hoped, could then be avoided. We have also noted that Howard Hunt retired from the CIA in 1970 and immediately went to work for Mullen and Company, a public relations firm in Washington, D.C. Intriguingly, CIA Director Richard Helms had personally intervened with Mullen on Hunt's behalf to get him the job. Mullen and Company, as we have discussed, had a cover contract. That is, it was authorized to provide an ostensible employment slot for a person who was, in fact, a CIA agent acting undercover. Simply put, Mullen and Company provided cover for undercover operatives such as, presumably, Hunt. First, a little background about Howard Hunt. After graduating from Brown University in 1943, Hunt joined the OSS the first solely foreign American intelligence agency formed during World War II. He then joined the CIA when it was founded in 1947, with a proviso in its charter that it could not perform domestic operations. Hunt spent most of his career in undercover operations, many of them involving manipulating political influence in a government of interest, in some cases to affect a regime change. For example, it was well known that Hunt was one of the architects and leaders of the ill-fated Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba in 1961. As a result, much mud was slung at President Kennedy as accusations flew about whether the administration gave the invaders sufficient support or whether the invasion was simply poorly planned by the CIA. In that invasion, Hunt worked closely with the patriotic Cuban exiles who sought to retake the island. After the abortive Bay of Pigs invasion, he also worked on Brigade 2506, also called or part of the Second Naval Guerrilla Operation, a subsequent plan to invade Cuba, ultimately coming to naught. Hunt had successfully engineered the 1954 ouster of Jacobo Arbenz Guzman, the president of Guatemala, and as well was rumored to have worked to overthrow Salvador Allende in Chile eventually effectuated after Hunt's retirement in 1973. Hunt twice before had falsely retired from the CIA and taken undercover positions. For several years, he worked in Washington, D.C. directing undercover operations based in Europe, and was also assigned to influence the American press in favor of the CIA and its initiatives, projects which he later admitted probably went beyond the elastic limits of the prohibition against domestic CIA operations. In his final years with the CIA, he worked for the highly secretive Office of Security, or OS, a section of the CIA that reported directly to Director Richard Helms, the only section to do so. In 1969, while Hunt was still with the agency and OS, he importuned his fellow Brown graduate Charles Colson to hire him for White House employment. Colson was new to the job, and while widely thought to be Nixon's, quote, hatchet man, unquote, Colson was unsure of his authority and had no pressing need at the time for Hunt in any event. As Hunt retired from the agency, ostensibly in April of 1970, the White House Interagency Committee on Domestic Intelligence was preparing the program to be known as the Houston Plan. The plan sought to expand the capability for domestic operations by intelligence agencies other than the FBI, which was already exercising them. It was prohibited that an agency could perform these operations by itself without the FBI's participation. With the White House under Nixon now dedicated to domestic intelligence, it was unclear under the Houston plan to what extent the White House, through Houston, or the FBI, through Sullivan, would authorize the CIA to perform its own domestic operation. Our point here is that the Houston plan under development might make a D.C.-based undercover operative quite useful for the CIA. The rules were becoming gray, no longer black and white. So domestic operational possibilities were perhaps emerging for the CIA in the spring of 1970 as Hunt was supposedly retiring and the Houston plan was ready for implementation. In any case, it may be coincidental, or it may not, that around this time on April 30, 1970, Hunt retired from the CIA and obtained a job with Mullen & Company, about which we've spoken before. Mullen could provide cover for a CIA agent, although it normally did so in foreign countries where the CIA was allowed to operate. Let us assume for a moment that Hunt was in fact selected to work with Mullen & Company to obtain domestic operations capability for the CIA, a conclusion that, as we will explore in this series, would not be irrational. The next question would be why the agency chose Hunt and not someone else. We know that Hunt had a vast amount of undercover operational experience, including working to influence various governments. He also had great experience stretching the elastic limits of the CIA's charter, conducting operations within the United States, which Hunt later admitted might not have been permissible. But there is another qualification which Hunt possessed, which was unique among CIA operatives. Hunt was a graduate of Brown University. He had been active in the Brown University Club of Washington, D.C. Hunt was elected to be its vice president and served for years under... Charles Colson, the president of the club, and of course, a Brown alum himself. Colson was known as President Nixon's hatchet man, a bright, aggressive lawyer and street fighter who appealed to the more churlish instincts of President Nixon's infamous dark side. So it would not be unreasonable to see that in an era where the CIA needed approval from the White House for the performance of domestic operations, Colson might be just the man who would give it to Hunt, who would be acting as an undercover agent through Mullen. All he needed to obtain some color of White House authority was a working relationship with Colson. Under this theory, Hunt could diary a comment from Olson, quote, we ought to do X, unquote. Or better, quote, the president says he wants to do X, unquote. And then that would be authorization to do X on behalf of the CIA, perhaps more. That would be presidential authorization through the president's agent, Colson. As we noted earlier... Hunt had sought a White House position from Colson in 1969, while still employed with the CIA. Hunt, along with his boss, Robert Bennett, the new president of Mullen, continued to seek a part-time White House gig from Colson after Hunt joined Mullen. Interestingly, at one point in 1970, Hunt and Bennett offered Hunt services free of charge for Colson, again to no avail. If Bennett was offering Hunt services for free, Mullen would implicitly be subsidizing Hunt for whatever he did for the White House. We can then draw the inference that Hunt's work ostensibly for White House benefit would also be beneficial, perhaps primarily beneficial, to Mullen and Company. And of course, Hunt's proposed quote-free unquote work for the White House would likely not benefit Mullen and its public relations work since Hunt was hired for confidential and sensitive White House matters. Common sense, though, tells us that this work would benefit Mullen in its CIA relationship. If Hunt could gain any operational authority as a White House aide, he might thereby use that authority as a covert CIA operative to perform domestic CIA operations. That authority could be based, for instance, on loose talk by Colson or others, even if they did not know that they were thereby authorizing, in the view of Hunt, a CIA operation. The hatchet man Colson, was constantly involved in the dirty plans of the White House, much of them going nowhere beyond President Nixon's ramblings, which in turn were usually fueled by copious amounts of alcohol. It was no secret that Nixon often suggested thuggish, illegal acts, usually forgetting about the comments or later apologizing for him. These ramblings could prove very convenient for the CIA. Later, John Ehrlichman, the counselor to the president and in Nixon's close circle, and White House aide Tom Houston would both say that they would never comply with any dark request of Nixon unless the president persisted on several occasions, on the theory that they were more ruminations than sincere commands which would not soon be regretted. Tom Houston once admitted over lunch that he made a practice of simply neglecting to carry out any questionable task that the president requested of him. Later, Nixon would invariably thank Houston for not having done so. Houston told me he had become very concerned about newcomers to Nixon's White House, who seemed all too eager to leap to carry out these dark suggestions of the president without any hesitation. So from the CIA's viewpoint, Hunt's attachment to Coulson and the rich vein of presidential mutterings directed thereto would bring the covert agent a diary full of potential White House authorizations for domestic CIA operations. To get a bit ahead of ourselves, let's give an example of such a scheme. In March of 1972, President Nixon was upset with syndicated columnist Jack Anderson. The reporter was revealing embarrassing inside dirt on the administration's tilt toward Pakistan in the India-Pakistan silent war. According to Hunt, Colson had relayed the president's dark mutterings about Anderson, such that Hunt was later able to seize upon slivers of this anti-Anderson diatribe to claim Years later that the White House was planning to disable Jack Anderson perhaps by poisoning or assassination. the CIA had itself been so planning to disable or assassinate Anderson, which would have been an illegal domestic operation. Neither Nixon nor Colson had ever suggested to hunt anything approaching poisoning, disablement, or murder. But certainly there have been many negative thoughts spoken about Anderson but to legitimize Hunt's later discussions about disabling Anderson, Hunt claimed in testimony in 1975 that Colson had relayed such as a presidential order. This is all Hunt needed to claim later that the CIA was not acting illegally when it discussed poisoning Anderson. More on this in a later episode, but we present this simply as an example of Hunt's seizure on loose talk to claim legality for an otherwise illegal CIA domestic operation. The Anderson matter and the burglary of Daniel Ellsberg psychiatrist Louis Fielding provide two templates for Watergate. Both operations were undertaken primarily for CIA purposes, and in each case Hunt claimed that they were undertakings which the White House had directed him to perform. The unwitting Liddy thought that in fact Hunt was working for the White House in their discussion about poisoning Anderson with Edward Gunn, a supposedly retired CIA poisons doctor. At a lunch to which Hunt had invited the unsuspecting Liddy, they talked of poisoning Anderson and also talked of other ways of assassinating him, one of them ramming Anderson's vehicle in a roundabout by hitting it with another vehicle at a certain angle, proven to be deadly. At the conclusion of the meeting, Hunt asked Liddy to pay Gunn $100, winkingly telling Liddy that this was for purposes of tradecraft, whereas Liddy complied. This was an act for the CIA's benefit to show Nixon's authorization. Later, should the CIA be caught disabling or planning to disable Anderson, such as by poisoning him with LSD, Hunt and Gunn could point to this payment to show that the White House had commissioned this operation. In June 1971, Colson contacted Hunt for his part-time hire and first assignment with the White House. Daniel Ellsberg had just leaked the Pentagon Papers to the New York Times an apparent crime, the revelation of national security information classified, certainly an act causing alarm to national security advisor Henry Kissinger. It was unclear to Kissinger and eventually Nixon if Ellsberg was in league with the Soviet Union in so doing. Perhaps a far-fetched conclusion from this remove. But nonetheless, the Pentagon Papers did provide some valuable information to other countries about American intelligence sources and methods. In fact, there was a strong rumor that Ellsberg had provided voluminous documents to the Soviet embassy. Colson had told Hunt in late June 1971 that he needed him for his help in investigating Ellsberg, as well as for other, quote, sensitive, unquote, projects. Hunt was hired on July 7, 1971, by the White House. We will return to that hiring session in a bit but let me first note an oddity regarding the timing which may be meaningful. Well before Colson gave Hunt a call in June 1971, Hunt had traveled to Miami in April of 1971, where he got in touch with his old Bay of Pigs veterans. These Cuban emigres, still ardent anti-Castro exiles, were thrilled to reunite with the legendary Eduardo. Hunt as Eduardo had led them previously in the Bay of Pigs and the second naval guerrilla operation, the latter of which, as we have mentioned, a second planned invasion of Cuba, never transpired. The feeling among the Cubans was that, with Eduardo visiting, they were, quote, back in business, unquote, as one of them had said. These Cubans were the operatives that eventually performed the burglary of the Ellsberg psychiatrist Dr. Louis Fielding in Beverly Hills, California, and were later part of the two Watergate burglaries. It appears they performed other operations as well, including a wiretapping of the Chilean embassy, not an operation even remotely of interest to the White House. Why is this contact with the Cubans so significant? Clearly, Hunt had then decided to become some sort of covert work under Mullen cover when he contacted his former operatives in April of 1971 in Miami. But he had not yet, of course, snagged a White House job with Colson. That call came in June. Whatever he would be doing with the Cubans was not something then sought by Nixon or Colson. Before we get into that issue, we note that since he claimed at the time full-time Mullen employment, then this venture into Miami would have been done solely through his Mullen work. All else after his White House hire can be attributed, however implausibly, to his White House duties so that the CIA would, after this hire, have plausible deniability. But such attribution of the White House cannot be made as to his engagement with these Cuban patriots in April 1971. Our point is that Hunt could only have been reunited with the Cubans in April 1971 for CIA purposes, not those of the White House. And these were Cubans later involved in Watergate. Daniel Ellsberg had been a protege of Henry Kissinger early in the Vietnam War, and an analyst at Rand Corporation in Santa Monica. Originally, Ellsberg was a hawkish Vietnam War advocate. After some period of time, he turned ardently anti-war, and the result was his leak of the Pentagon Papers to the New York Times. But his interest to the CIA may have extended beyond the Vietnam War. Ellsberg had been a very close friend of Francis Fitzgerald, an ardent anti-war advocate and author of the bestseller Fire in the Lake, a critical look at the Vietnam War. That the two would become friends is unremarkable, since both were strident advocates of withdrawal from the war. But what likely interested the CIA in Fitzgerald was her status as the daughter of the late Desmond Fitzgerald, a so-called Knight Templar of the OSS under William Donovan, the World War II forerunner to the modern CIA. Fitzgerald became one of the leading Black Ops OSS operatives. His Black Ops work for the OSS eventually morphed into Black Ops work for the CIA when it was formed in 1947. Undoubtedly, when Desmond Fitzgerald died, the agency hoped that all his Dart secrets had gone with him to the grave. However, Desmond was very close with his daughter Frances and the possibility loomed large that he had informed his daughter in his later years of his ugly activities with the agency, while she in turn may have betrayed them to her close friend Ellsberg. So it would be quite reasonable for the CIA to feel that if Ellsberg would leak the Pentagon Papers, he could also leak very significant CIA secrets learned from the Fitzgeralds. In short, the CIA may have been interested in what information had made its way to Ellsberg from Fitzgerald or otherwise. What did Ellsberg know, for example, about the DM assassination of South Vietnam's president and other sensitive matters? The point here is simply that Hunt and Mullen showed their true colors in April 1971, because there was no way that Mullen or Hunt could have, with straight face, linked Hunt's activities in that time period to any work for the White House. Hunt was in Miami on Mullen's tab, and therefore, presumably for the CIA, not for the White House. As Hunt was being hired by Colson in June 1971, Colson needed a formal sign-off on the hire from John Ehrlichman. At the time, Ehrlichman was extremely busy and was that day about to hop on a plane to San Clemente in the Western White House. Ehrlichman had no reason to probe what Hunt's duties would be or care or concern about their specific features, and gave Colson his perfunctory approval for the hire. Why is this important? Because in the coming year, The CIA would use virtually every department in the CIA to assist Hunt, and it would claim, falsely, that Ehrlichman had asked for that widespread cooperation. Hunt had used Helms' heavy-handed assistance to get his job with Mullen. Then Hunt importuned the CIA Employment Assistance Department to seek retired CIA personnel to work on his team. He retained the CIA Graphics Department to prepare the gemstone charts for Liddy used other CIA sections for disguises, for weapons, for fake IDs, safe houses, surveillance equipment, for medical evaluations, each from a different department. How does the CIA explain this widespread support of a supposedly retired agent? Obviously, this support suggests that Hunt was working for the CIA undercover in his White House posting. According to the CIA, all of this came about because Ehrlichman had called General Robert Cushman of the CIA on the day of Hunt's hire to ask him for carte blanche assistance for Hunt, in the words of Cushman. Ehrlichman strongly denies so doing well after any criminal jeopardy would attach to him. In any case, such a request would not have been illegal. So Ehrlichman, if he made it, would not have a motive to falsify. Ehrlichman's denial, in short, is highly credible, especially in view of Ehrlichman's non-involvement with any task that Hunt was to perform for Colson. In short, why would Ehrlichman ask the CIA for assistance when he had no idea what Hunt would be tasked to do? The CIA's pathetic attempts to later create one-sided documents to support this request is itself evidence of guilt via fabrication of documents. If Ehrlichman is telling the truth, as he likely is, this widespread agency assistant shows that Hunt was an active agent, gaining coordinated, widespread support authorized from the very top of the agency. Later, in April of 1972, shortly before the first Watergate break-in, the alarmed station chief in Miami inquired of high-level officials in Washington, D.C. if they knew of Hunt's activities with various CIA Cuban assets in Miami. The station chief was told very peremptorily to, quote, cool it, unquote, and to cease further inquiry, stating that Hunt was on White House business. The response, which infuriated the station chief, was strong indication that Hunt's activities were receiving protection from the very top of the agency. In any case, the best template for Hunt's undercover CIA work is not his discussion with Liddy of the disabling of columnist Jack Anderson, which we will treat more fully later. An even better example of Hunt's undercover work would be found in the burglary of Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist, Lewis Fielding. Please recall that if Hunt was a CIA infiltrator, he would want to inveigle the White House to improve an operation which Hunt would promote as good for the White House, while in fact he was doing so to gain a tincture of presidential national security authorization for an otherwise illegal CIA operation. So let's examine evidence of whether the Watergate burglaries were at least in part a covert CIA operation and begin with the Ellsberg break-in. If that burglary was in fact in part a CIA job, albeit one with White House approval, we can infer similarly for the Watergate burglaries. Thank you for listening. I've just completed a book on the same subject, entitled The Mysteries of Watergate, What Really Happened. While it covers the material in our podcast, I have added two chapters of contextual materials and removed the repetition needed for a podcast. For those enjoying this series, it will serve as a valuable historical reference. For your non-listening friends, it will prove enlightening and entertaining. Thank you for your support.